study of the Gospel of John again. As you know, anytime we go through an extended study of any book of the Bible, we do so with the understanding that the Holy Spirit may interrupt us from time to time, bring in another word, something of application that might be necessary at the particular point, and then we go back to John. And so that's what's been happening. You know what would be wonderful if some of you who want to be able to have this whole series after it's all finished, just get the whole series together. I think that we will be able to put them together in, I don't know how many CDs it would take, 322? <clears throat> A lot of CDs. I think we began this in 2007, something like that. So it's exciting to go through the Word of God. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 19 as we begin Someone may think, and Keith referenced some of this last week, how can just one little sin be a problem? It was just a little thing I did. It was just a comment. It was just a small activity. How can one sin be so bad? Can one sin be such a big deal? Well, the answer is no, it isn't if we're looking at it through our eyes. But if we are considering it from the perspective of God and His holiness and His majesty, then even one sin is eternally an affront and a dishonor to God. Amen? Now think about it. One sin is an eternal affront, attack, and dishonor to God. So what happened with Adam's one sin? I, I just took one bite. I didn't even eat the whole thing. I just got a bite. With Adam's one sin, the entire race of man, the entire cosmos was plunged into spiritual darkness, death, and damnation. One sin. But you see, God had planned the creation to be a display of His grandeur and His glory. And when this sin was committed, it seemed as if everything that God had planned had been thwarted. But you see, the good news is this. And you hold on to this when you, as I need to when I sin. The good news is this. That even before Adam sinned. God had a plan to rescue us. Amen? Now think about that. Even before Adam sinned, God had a plan to rescue us. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that he had to hurriedly put together. And so in this sin of Adam, we see the presence and purpose and power of God at work. What was that plan? What was the plan? Romans 8.3 tells us. The plan was this, that God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God had a plan. He had a plan before He created. He had a plan during the creation. He had a plan after the creation. He had a plan before Adam sinned. He had a plan when Adam sinned. He had a plan after Adam sinned. He has a plan that will be accomplished fully forever. Amen? He has a plan. What is that plan? That Jesus Christ Himself would take upon Him the full measure of the sin of God's people and condemn it all into the death of 
and into the grave and rise so that we may eternally be the image bearers of God whom he desired us to be in the very beginning. So by the time we come to John chapter 19, the trials of Jesus are already concluded. You remember in John 18, 38, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. I can't condemn this man. He hasn't done anything wrong. They couldn't prove anything religiously wrong. And Pilate says he hasn't done anything civilly or morally wrong. He is an innocent man. The trials of Jesus are over. But you see, in the first several verses, 1 to 16 of chapter 19 of John, we have Pilate acquiescing to the Jewish insistence that Jesus be crucified. So let's read together chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone of Payment and the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Now all of God's plan was going to be fulfilled. God's great purpose in creation was now going to see its full fulfillment as we read together Acts chapter 19, verses 17 to 30. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, 
Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. What do we see here? If we would ask many people, what happened at the cross? Many, I think, would answer a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Perhaps they would say, well, it was just an accident. Perhaps they would say, well, you know, Jesus was misunderstood and maybe Jesus didn't understand how to handle himself and he got himself back into a corner. And as a result of this, they crucified him because he didn't know how to get out of what was going on. Perhaps many would think this was a terrible miscarriage of justice. What was happening? Was it a tragedy? Was it a miscarriage of justice? No. Acts 2, 23, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this. He tells us that Jesus' crucifixion was according to God's sovereign plan. Everything we see about this great event, not just this event, the entire life of Jesus, but focusing this morning on just chapter 19, every aspect of this event... Every word of this event, every reaction within this event, all of it together is a fulfillment of prophecy. You remember what Jesus had told Pilate, which we just heard read. Pilate says, I have authority to do what I want to with you. You need to answer me. I have authority to either let you go or to kill you. And Jesus says, You have no authority over me except that which was given to you from heaven. And in this, you see, Jesus is proclaiming that what is happening here is not within the purview and the jurisdiction of the Romans or the Jews or whoever. But what is happening here is the unfolding eternal plan of God himself as announced in Scripture throughout the entire history of the dealings of God with man. What was happening? Specifically, what was going on at the cross? And it's extremely important that we know specifically what was going on at the cross. And in next week's sermon, we'll have a little greater detail of the actual things that were occurring. But in 2 Corinthians 5.19, the Apostle Paul tells us this. God was in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself, not counting their or our trespasses against them. God was in Christ saving us. This was no accident. This was the predetermined plan of the eternal and sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God. And how was God going to do this? How was God going to rescue us, reconcile us unto himself in this death of his son? Isaiah 53 tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in the death of Jesus, God's sovereign plan is finally fulfilled within the termination of Jesus' life, the forgiveness of our sins. So as I said before, everything that happens, 
Everything that happened to Jesus, everything that he says, every activity, no matter how large or small it might seem, everything about this event was according to God's preordained will, which was prophesied in the Scriptures. Nothing occurred that had not been ordained by God, and whether in minuscule detail or just in very general detail, prophesied in the Scriptures. You see, the Scriptures foretell and are fulfilled in this great event at the cross. You remember what was just read, verses 17 to 30, the actual event of the crucifixion. And within those verses, John tells us that the cross was prophesied in Scripture. He uses the word fulfilled four different times in John 19, 24. He says this, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. In verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all things had, that all things had already been accomplished in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 36, and these things came to pass in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 37, and again, another Scripture says, and he quotes. And so you see, what we have here is scriptural fulfillment. The Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 3, he says, I delivered unto you that which is of first importance. He says, here's the primary thing that you need to know as a believer. The most critical, the kerygma, the heart, the essence, the foundation of our faith is this. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You see, this is not an afterthought. This is not something that God is trying to make good out of a tragedy. This is the intricate, personal, intimate, complete, continual, consistent involvement and activity of God Himself in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. What Scriptures? Specifically, what Scriptures are being fulfilled? Well, there are a whole lot of scriptures that are being fulfilled, and we're not going this morning to take our time to deal with every scripture that was fulfilled here. But we want to at least narrow them down and look at the ones that were fulfilled, or most, or at least some of the ones that were fulfilled in the death of the Lord Jesus. So, where does this all begin? Where do we see the beginning of the scriptural imperative, the prophesying, the foretelling, the foretelling of God that I am going to send a Redeemer. The first scripture we have is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first scripture, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the Lord, remember, is speaking to the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, and He's telling Adam and Eve as a result of this sin, death has come into the world, and He's going to put them out of the Garden. But God is explaining the curse that will come upon and is now upon mankind because of man's sin. And He begins to explain the activities and the results of the curse upon them. And in verse 15, the Lord says, I will put enmity... Between you and the woman. He's talking now to the enemy. He's talking now to Satan. He talks to the man. He's talking to the woman. And now he's going to talk to the serpent himself. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, who? He. There is a man who is coming. The seed of the woman. There's a man who is coming. The seed of the woman. And you're going to inflict a wound on his heel. But when you inflict the wound on his heel, 
as a result of that infliction of that wound, He is going to crush your head. Amen? There's a man coming. And this man is going to redeem my people. And He's going to redeem my people by being wounded in the heel. And in that wound, Satan, your head, your authority will be crushed forever. Can you say amen? So when we see just that one verse, we realize this death of Jesus was no tragedy. Amen? How many of us can say, thank God for the death of Jesus Christ? Because I'm free today. Because Satan's authority in my life and in your life has been crushed. When the heel of this great man, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was inflicted in the heel. So the prophecies, the Scriptures begin where they should begin. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis. Amen? Be familiar with the book of Genesis because it is the very foundation of everything else that God does. Now, let's look at some of the other scriptures that have been fulfilled in the cross. And we're going to see these scriptures one by one. And as we look at each scripture, I want you, perhaps in your notes, to identify what particular event during the activity of the death of Jesus is being foretold and fulfilled. So let's just go through these one at a time. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Write down the answer if you know it. In whom is that scripture fulfilled? Say it again. I can't hear. Judas. Was it fulfilled? Psalm 31, 11. Because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances, my friends. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Who fled that night? Who fled? The disciples did what? They fled. Was this scripture fulfilled? I mean, how possibly could the psalmist who wrote this hundreds of years before, how could they have known these particular specific details of the death of a man about whom they knew very little, but just in a very general way, that there is a Messiah coming. God is declaring His intention, His power, His sovereignty, His will, His presence, His reality in each of these Scriptures. Psalm thirty-five, eleven. Malicious witnesses rise up. Remember the trial of Jesus? Remember when they would bring people in and what would happen? These witnesses were what? False or true? False. In fact, they could not even agree among themselves as to the details. He's going to build the temple. No, he's going to tear it down in three days. I don't know if it's two and a half days. They couldn't even agree to the details. They were liars. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. 
even this morning when we heard the reading, what was Jesus' response? The only time Jesus responded was in order to declare truth that was necessary to be declared at the moment. He did nothing to defend himself. He kept silent. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. They pierced my hands and my feet. You know, when this psalm was written, what is this piercing of the hands and feet relating to? What activity is it relating to? The actual physical being nailed to a cross. Now, the Persians developed that hundreds of years after the writing of this psalm. And then the Carthaginians picked it up from the Persians, and then the Romans continued it and refined it. Crucifixion wasn't even a form of death in those days when this was written. Probably when the psalmist said that, he had to admit to his friend, Randy, if he said, what do you mean by, I don't know what I mean by that, but I know that the Holy Spirit has said they're going to pierce his hands and his feet. What does that mean? I don't know what it means, but I know God is going to do something like this. He couldn't have told you what it meant. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We heard that read. That seamless robe. I mean, if we're going to tear the thing, it's going to ruin it. So let's just cast some lots a little bit. Let's play a little bunco. And then whoever wins this, you see, we can keep the robe. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Is that fulfilled in the cross? The great cry of dereliction of the Lord Jesus. The cry of this man who was experiencing and feeling for the first time in all eternity. The withdrawal of the fellowship and the intimacy of his father's love and presence. Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. What did we hear read this morning? And Jesus says, I thirst. And remember, they dipped the sponge in the, the vinegar and did what? Put it on the end of a hyssop and gave it to him. Is what we are reading today when it was written, was it being foretold? Yes, Scripture foretells. And as it was happening at the cross, were these prophecies being fulfilled? Scripture is being fulfilled in the cross. Psalm 22, 31. You might not catch this immediately, but in the Hebrew it is obvious, but in the translations it's not so obvious. At the end of verse 31 in Psalm 22, you have this phrase, and he has accomplished it. When Jesus says it is finished, the word really, it is accomplished. All the work has been completed. The work of redemption is now over. And his cry from the cross sums up all of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in verse 1 of Psalm 22? And it is completed is the last verse of Psalm 22. And everything in the middle of Psalm 22 relates to the activities and the feelings and the experiences of the Son of God upon the cross. We could have just taken Psalm 22 and explicated it this morning and shown how each of these issues that are foretold in that psalm or occurring at the cross. 
Take a moment and read Psalm 22 and think about Jesus on the cross as you read it. Psalm 31, 5. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. Do we hear those words in the cross of the Lord Jesus? What does Jesus say? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. See, never think that as somebody says, Jesus, when he died, went down to hell and was tortured by Satan for three days. It didn't happen. It says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I ain't going down to hell and Satan going to beat me up for three days in some kind of way, then going to release me and be the firstborn out of hell. That's heresy. Turn the man off when he preaches. Anybody who gets that kind of thing wrong should not be listened to. Would you go to a doctor who prescribed something that killed one of your children? Would you take the other children to the doctor? How many of you would do that? We're too soft. We're too easy. We need to be much greater with the Word of God because, you see, there's a snake out there slithering around trying to get in to the least little crack into our hearts. Isaiah 53, 9. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. What does that mean? Whose tomb was he buried in? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich guy. You see, everything about the crucifixion. I want to make sure we know everything about the Lord Jesus, but specifically the crucifixion this morning. Everything about it. It's not something that just happened. It is the purposeful outworking of the preordained predestination. The preordained plan of a loving and wise God to save his people through the death of his own son. Amen. And how do we know it's going to happen? How do we know it's going to happen? Because God Himself began to announce it personally to Satan on that day years ago. And then through the prophets and through the other men of God as they walked with God and received Scripture and began to record it and began to share it. God began to say, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. How do we know He's coming? How can we identify Him? This is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to occur. This will occur. And all the necessary details so that those who knew the Scriptures knew that the Messiah was coming. And when they saw this man, and when they listened to this man, and when they put this man on the cross, those men who knew the Scripture knew this is the seed of the woman. Scripture is the reason we know that what happens is God's will. Well, what's the significance of scriptural fulfillment for us? This is interesting. Makes a good theological, uh, con- uh, what do you call it, study. It's interesting. This is real interesting. But is it applicable to me? Is the fulfillment of Scripture about Jesus' death on the cross significant for my life? Is it significant for you? Is it significant for the church? Romans 15, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome beginning to conclude this great thesis on the justification of God through the death of His own Son. Romans 15, 4, Paul says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. 
so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Amen? You know why I have hope today? Because God has already proclaimed it in the Word and fulfilled so much of it. And so when things begin to go whatever in my life, I can be anchored and I can be instructed and I can be settled down and I can be armed and ready for the fight and I can win the battle just like you can because I know God is in the mix here because of fulfillment of Scripture. You see, our salvation is rooted in the promises of God in the Scripture which foretell Jesus' suffering and death. I mean, how many of you know or how many of you knew that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior apart from the Scriptures? How many of you were born again apart from the Scriptures working in your life? Raise your hand. If you were born again without the Scriptures and without scriptural understanding and explanation. Nobody. How many of us are growing in Christ, maturing and battling successfully? How many of us know the difference between sin and righteousness? How many of us understand what is God and what is not God apart from the Scriptures? How many of us know those things apart from the Scriptures? Is it important That we understand and know the significance of Scripture in our life. How would we know that this great event was God's work apart from the Scriptures? So let's look at a few things. The fulfillment of Scripture. What does it do in my life? Where is the significance of the fulfillment of Old Testament and maybe even some New Testament words. What is the significance of all this old stuff in my current day life? The fulfillment of Scripture shows us first. I believe first and primarily the fulfillment of Scripture shows us that God is completely sovereign. Not only knowing, but controlling. Amen? Oh, God knows it all. God knows it all. Well, that's nice. But I want to know more than God just has a big mind. I want to know that God has a big ability. It's not satisfying to me to know that God knows it all. That's part of the deal. I've got to know that God not only knows it, but what? He is controlling. Do you believe that anything and everything in my life and your life is absolutely within the hands of a sovereign, controlling, and loving God? Do you believe that? Then why in the name of the Lord Jesus do I and so many of us complain so much? I knew I shouldn't have answered that man's question. You see, if I knew it with all my heart, I'd be like the Apostle Paul, that whatever circumstance, whatever is happening, I have learned therewith to be content. Why? Because I know that God not only knew this thing, but He is in the mix of it, doing His great work. How do I know that? Because Scripture has been fulfilled in the great event of Jesus' death at the cross. So get one thing under your belt today if you don't get anything else under your belt. And get this, the Scripture fulfilled shows me that God is completely sovereign, knowing and, say it again, I like the word, controlling how much? Now, now really, how much? Now, do you really believe it's everything? Well, it's everything until my mother-in-law comes over to my house and starts this and that and the other thing. You just don't know my husband when he gets home at night. My wife is the biggest mouth in the world. You see, it's everything except those details, don't you see? Isn't that right? No, it's everything. Now, that raises a whole lot of questions. What about this? I have an answer for you. What about the tragedy over here? I have an answer. Here's the answer. I don't know. But I'll give you the biblical answer. 
Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4, that's the answer. Why the tragedy? What am I going to do about it as a believer? Habakkuk 2.4. What's that? What's that? Go look it up. Go to the Bible and open it. But not now. If there's a huge tragedy, and I'm going to preach the sermon, it's going to be Habakkuk 2.4. That's the answer for you. That's how you're to respond. The just shall live by trusting in this almighty God. Can you say amen? I don't know why my mama died. I don't know why my little baby this happened. I don't know why the cancer came. I know one thing. I can trust God. Can you say amen? I can trust God. How do I know? Scripture proves it. I have a God, a loving Father, whom I can trust. I don't have to like everything, and I certainly don't understand most things. But I'm called to do one thing primarily, and to do what? I trust you. I trust you. The just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4. It's a good verse, isn't it? I think it might be even... Mentioned in the New Testament somewhere, but that one I'm not going to tell you about. Listen to Isaiah 41.4 about the knowing and controlling God. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord. The fulfillment of Scripture proves that all Scripture is truth. Remember in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying and he said, Sanctify them, Father, in the truth, for thy word or scripture is what? Truth. Fulfillment of scripture shows me that all of it, how much? I like your mouth. Come on. How much of it? All of it is true. Does that mean I understand it all? No. But that means that even when I don't understand, I know one thing. It is true. The fulfillment of Scripture shows us that God forgives us in Christ. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from... Cleanses us from... Cleanses us from all sin. Don't be afraid to raise your voice in this church. Keith raises his every time he gets up here, yells and shouts at us. I get tired of it, but that's how he is. He's a loud mouth. I don't like loud mouths. Scripture fulfillment shows me that that man dying on the cross was for my sin. The fulfillment of Scripture assures me that God will keep me and you Say Philippians 1.6. Paul says, for I am confident of this very one thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, what? Will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. How can we know? Because Scripture is fulfilled. And guaranteed by the power of God through the death and resurrection of His Son. Is that right? Yes. The fulfillment of Scripture tells us that God's intention for us in Christ is always good. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. We should never allow any activity, circumstance, or anything at all in our lives to in any way impugn or question God's goodness. Had He only saved us and written our names in the book of life and waits for us to die and lets us go through any and everything on earth, it would still be enough good. Amen? Everything of His intention for me within that sovereign 
purpose of His is what? What is it? Good. Is it important to know the significance of fulfilled Scripture? You see, the fulfillment of Scripture assures us that God loves us in Christ. Remember 1 John 3, 1, see what love the Father has lavished, bestowed, poured out upon us that we should be called the sons or the children of God, and such we are. How do I know that? Scripture fulfillment proves it to me. The fulfillment of Scripture shows us that God is at work in every detail of my life and of your life. Scriptural fulfillment shows me that God is in every detail. Romans 8, 28. For we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. How do you know it? Because He's already proven the veracity of His Word through the cross. The fulfillment of Scripture convinces us that God keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. Ezekiel 12, 25. I will speak the Word and perform it, declares the Lord God. What God says He will do, He will do. Is there any activity, force, power, or combination of forces and power? In fact, can all hell itself generate enough activity to prevent God from accomplishing His great purpose? Can it happen? No! So don't be worried about what they're doing up there in Washington, D.C., that your life is going to fall apart. What God has promised for us in Christ, what? He will perform it. Right, David? He will perform it. The fulfillment of Scripture should motivate us to holy living. Let's turn to 1 Peter. It's back in the Old, uh, New Testament, way back there. You see, the fulfillment of Scripture should not only generate in me a lot of encouragement and a lot of stability and a lot of understanding. But you see, doctrine produces practice. And all of this fulfillment of Scripture, what we've been going through, is to show us that what God has done has done for a practical purpose to be worked out in our lives on a daily and living basis. So that we in our lives may be personally the fulfillment of Scripture wherever it is that we are and wherever we go and whatever we do. You see, we are the living realities of God's fulfillment of Scripture to the world. And many people will never look at a Bible or hear about a Bible, but they will see the living reality of God's fulfillment of the Scriptures in me and in you. So what does First Peter one? I'm sorry, ten to sixteen say concerning this salvation? <clears throat> the prophets who prophesied about the grace of God, the Scriptures, you see, that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of. Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God because of scriptural fulfillment that will be brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, again, scripture, you shall be holy 
for I am holy. Does scriptural fulfillment have any relevance to my life? The fulfillment of Scripture should comfort us and bring hope during times of trial and tribulation and suffering. Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise, your Scripture, your Word gives me life. In the midst of what is going on in my life when I am not enjoying it, I have an anchor in the Scripture to know that my God is not only controlling, He is in the boat with me. And this boat will not sink because Jesus is in it with me. Thank you. The fulfillment of Scripture allows us to experience the reason for our sufferings in Christ. Second Corinthians, let's turn there. Second Corinthians 4, 8 to 18. You see, the fulfillment of Scripture allows me to be able to experience the sufferings when I suffer, be able to experience these in Christ and understand what's happening. It instructs me. Second Corinthians 4, 8 to 18. Paul writing, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Anybody being afflicted? But why aren't we crushed? God is with us. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Why? God is with us. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Why? God is with us. We're struck down. But we're not destroyed. God is with us. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Let me skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. When you're going through it, don't lose heart. How do I know this is true? Scripture fulfillment. He says, though this outer nature, this this flesh of ours is falling apart, wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Why? As we look. Not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. Fulfillment of Scripture. See, also the fulfillment of Scripture reminds us that as Christ suffered for our good, God uses our sufferings for the good of others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Paul is saying that, God is a God of all comfort who comforts us with the same comfort in our affliction that we now are to comfort others when they are afflicted. How many of you have received comfort and help from someone else who went through something but came to your rescue? Anybody in here having ever experienced? So can you say this? Thank you, Jesus, that uh, that other person suffered. Why not? Oh, well, I can't. Why not? Yes, this is God's work. I am afflicted. And in the affliction, I receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, I'm able now to comfort others in the same affliction. So you should be able to say, thank God for the wisdom of his work in afflicting the old man. Amen. We have trouble. It's difficult. But this is God. Can you say God's work is wisdom? So what is the significance of this? You see, the fulfillment of Scripture proves that the Bible is from and about God. From kiva to kiva, as they used to say. From cover to cover, God, Bible, this scripture, this word of truth is from God and it's about God. 
completely trustworthy. The fulfillment of Scripture shows us that the Bible has personal and immediate application to our lives in every category, in every circumstance, for all time. Do you believe it? Do you really believe this? How do we know this? Because, you see, we have seen just a very small section of Scripture being fulfilled in this one event. And we didn't even read all the Scriptures about this event. There are many, 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 many more. We could have filled the screen and the page with the Scriptures that God has given us to assure us, I am the Lord Almighty. And I have planned your salvation. And I have accomplished your salvation. And I save you. And I care and love you. And now as I had the very life of my son in my hands, conducting every aspect of his life perfectly for my will, your redemption, now your life is in the same hands. Amen? It's in the same hands. We're in the same context. The fulfillment of Scripture proves to me and should prove to you that this one who came the first time is coming back. Amen? He's coming back. He is coming back. He's coming back. Yes, clap. Yes, he's coming back. Thank God he is coming back in the clouds. Why do you sit around looking for this Jesus? He's not here. He's gone on. And as he said, he's going to come back the same way he went up. He went up in the clouds and he's coming back with the cloud of witnesses. Amen. He's coming back. He's coming back. You see, so whether they pass a health thing or not, or whether banks go bankrupt or not, I don't know all that. But I know one thing based on Scripture already fulfilled, that the God who has fulfilled Scripture already will be faithful to continue the whole work until the end. And he says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. If you're here this morning and you think you're going to escape something, and you have denied the Lord Jesus, and you have not received Jesus as your Savior, and you think you can get away with something, He's coming back! And as Eric said today, He ain't coming back as a soft-spoken man on a pony. He's coming back as a man armed to the teeth on the white horse. And He's coming back, and He is going to deal with every adversary. So the next time something happens and you say, who's going to pay? Jesus has already paid for ours, and He will cause the others to be paid for. He's going to cause them to pay. Amen? He's coming back. You see, He's coming back, church. He's coming back. He's not leaving us here. And should I die before it, then I'm coming back with Him. And I'm going to have my own horse. I'm coming back with him. So whether he comes first, if I'm here or not here, doesn't mean diddly squat to me. I'm going to be there some kind of way on one side or the other. Are you? Are you going to be there? You see, because when he comes back, he is not coming back, as Hebrew says, in reference to sin. He's coming back in reference to judgment. And he's going to clean house completely. Completely put away all adversaries. Thems who think this word is foolish or on that day going to melt before the blazing eyes of this great God of ours. He's coming back. You want to begin the new year the right way? God's way? Then let's make sure we spend time with God in His Scriptures so that we will be a living fulfillment of what God has said and what God has fulfilled in His Word. It's the truth. Your life depends upon it. 
And that's a good thing. Amen. That's it.